Back in the day, Australia's newspapers were the go-to place for fiction. But the stories can be hard to find, and newspapers don't last forever. So this is where we come in. I'm Dr Rod Lamberts, and this is To Be Continued, a podcast from the Australian National University that extracts literary gold from Australia's newspapers in the 19th and early 20th century. Our old newspapers are treasure troves of forgotten literature, crammed full of stories offering glimpses of a past, both familiar and foreign. Last night, the expert thief entered my bedroom. I was asleep. The thief's practiced fingers deftly drew out the ring from my hiding place. But as he moved away with the booty, I awoke. Instinctively, I put my hand up into my beard. The ring was gone. I heard. A stealthy footstep. Stand! I proclaim. Or I'll blow hell out of you! Noiselessly, the finished burglar sneaked toward my bed. He aimed a terrible blow at me with the knife striking a rib (coughs) and glancing aside a nasty flesh wound. (coughs) I shot the stabber in the dark, dead. I'm Dr. Rod Lamberts. You've just listened to an excerpt from The Story of the Three Photos by Roland Quiz, published in the Western Champion and General Advertiser for the Central Western Districts. That's quite a long, um, quite a long title. It was published March 15, 1892. And it's yet another belter of a tale that's been dug out of Trove uh, by the 2B Continued team. So why this story? Why have we chosen this story? It's because in this episode of 2B Continued, we're talking tales from around the campfire, or rather, stories within stories. But as always, I'm just the host, and what we need is an expert. So in this episode, I'm joined by Carol Hetherington, who's a bibliographer extraordinaire, dare I say, who's been working with the uh, 2B Continued and Trove team, I think, since its inception. Is that right, Carol? Yes, since its inception. Though at the beginning, it was just Catherine Bird and myself. We're more numerous now. There's certainly no lack of work to be done. I mean, that's been very clear across this this series that there is so much to be dug into and discovered. But today, stories within stories and stories that are often told, at least in our example, from uh, around the campfire. So you shot us this story as an example of what you're looking into or what you think is particularly interesting about this stories within stories motif. Why did you choose this around the campfire story? I was I was intrigued that a small newspaper like the Western Champion would come up with a narrative structure that was as sophisticated as this. The framed narrative is something that was famous in literary history from um, A Thousand and One Nights or The Arabian Nights or Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, where a group of people on a journey of some kind meet every day and the different members of the team provide a tale as an entertainment for the evening. So I thought in this small Queensland town with this small newspaper, who has thought of this? So that in itself was intriguing. Then there's the variety of the stories that are introduced and quite frankly, the skill with which they're melded together. The person who's, to whom this is attributed in the newspaper 
is not the author of the stories, but he's the author of the framed story. So let's just clarify that then. There's this overarching narrative of drovers taking a long journey and they stop, I assume, every night and tell each other stories. That's the overarching narrative? Yes. There's a, they're, they're moving a, a mob of sheep from North Queensland to the Homebush sale yards in Sydney. Mm. And every night they stop and camp somewhere. Tonight, and for the first night since they left the Boroman, the whole party is camped safely round the campfire. And for entertainment, a member of the party tells a story. The boss suggests that they must do something in the way of amusing each other by every one of them contributing an interesting narrative, otherwise a jolly good yarn to the general fund. So a variety of people, a variety of stories, all of which have been sourced from somewhere else. <laughs> I, I see you, uh, there's a small pause between sourced from. Do you mean uh, gratuitously borrowed or uh, Yes, gratuitously nicked? borrowed, which was, which was the practice at that time. Things uh, were often published anonymously, then they were quite casually republished many times, sometimes with their titles changed, usually without any acknowledgement at all. Mm. But I think that's just part of the course at that time. Okay, so there was no pushback from those authors that you're aware saying, hey, that was mine and you stole it? Okay. And we're talking 22 installments of this, this series. Yes. Yeah. And that ran over, if I've got my numbers right, about six months through the paper. Yes, from the 26th of January, 1892. And really it's quite, there's a lot of skill in the framing narrative. Sometimes they are stories themselves with a, with a, a title like the story of the three photos, mm. but sometimes they're just tales that have been woven together into the narrative. So there's no particular story in the episode. And one of these is an episode called A Ghostly Chapter, where each member of the party delivers a ghost story that they've come across at some point in their life. Interestingly enough, these were all published in a book of real ghost stories that were collected by in the UK. So there's one about a Danish student, there's one from an Irish priest, and the author of the framing narrative has mixed these together in a very credible sort of way. So in these instalments, there are obviously multiple kinds of stories that were told within the overarching frame. Um, yes. Were, was there a pattern to those? Were there more of one kind of story than another or were there particular styles or were they all over the place? No, they're all over the place, really. There's more of a, a pattern to the five Australian stories ah. in the sense that they tend to be a little bit more about the bush, the gold fields and pioneering sort of things except for the three photos, which is the one that we've just heard, which is more of an urban story. That's a great story, though. I have to say I was, I was quite compelled. Not only reading it was one thing, but then hearing it performed as we did by our Perform Australia. Yes. They did a great job. They're, uh, what, la final year students? And they did a great job of bringing it to life, I thought. But it's a, it's a cracking story, too. Like it is it's a good story. Nice little twist in the end. I'm not going to ruin it. For people who haven't listened yet, click on the companion episode so that you can hear that story read by people more professional and expert than me. So the Australian stories within these overarching narratives were the ones you say that are a bit more similar. Um, did any particularly stand out? Were any of the sub-stories, uh, I don't know, more controversial or more surprising, or were they all pretty much what you'd expect from newspapers telling stories individually as well as under this overarching frame? Well, there are 
in a, in a couple of them, there are things that we probably find a little bit distasteful now in references to Chinese people, to Indigenous people. I think that's just something that's inevitable for things that were being written then. They were pretty casually racist in their approach. But that's not the main thrust of the stories. That's incidental. There's one about a man who is the second in charge of the driving um, expedition, purportedly, about being trapped uh, in the steam boiler of a, a gold-crushing plant. It's called his terrifying experience. I won't spoil it. Uh, but as a result of this terrifying experience, he is sort of calmer and quieter life being a drover in North Queensland. Shades of Plancy of the Overflow. The other one that I really like, it's the final episode. It's just called, in the newspaper, it's just called The Last Night of the Camp. But it's a story that was published in the Sydney Referee and it was called A Bush Race Meeting. And that, that's very good. It's very much in that tradition of rollicking, larrikin, Australian colour. And uh, that's a good one. Well, they all sound great. And by the sounds of it, you could read each of these as a standalone. You don't have to be up to speed on the overarching narrative or, or does that become a problem no, at any don't. point? you don't have to be. Um, the ones that have got a title um, are fine. There are a couple, the ones, the ghost story, you'd have to no, and you could read that as a standalone. So I have a question then. You, you mentioned there were advertisements about this series and they were promising big things or at least promising something. Is that the only reason to link these stories together? Because I, I have to say, as much as it's enjoyable, why bother with this this thematic arc running through all these separate stories if they could stand alone? What, what, what did it add or what was its purpose? I'm not really sure. I suppose it contextualised some of the loosest tales. I think he also probably wanted to create one of these framed narratives. He was obviously a passionate, a passionate Australian. And yeah, I think he perhaps wanted to just try his hand at this, see how he went. Yeah, I was, in, I was intrigued. To, to I didn't get a chance to read all the stories, but is the overarching narrative worth it? Like, did you get to the final one and go, oh, and the story of the drovers was also worth telling? And, and I suppose my other question related would be, could that stand on its own or it really needs these supporting internal stories each episode, so to speak? I don't think it could stand alone, but it does blend them all together in a way. When they arrive at Homebush, it's mentioned that one of the party is going to go off overseas, going to Argentina, I think, to try and find work there. There are a couple of other comments about what will happen to the rest of the people as they disperse. Yeah, and I can imagine it would be much like a, a soapy or something each week when you read it, at least you, you're sort of familiar with the people telling the tales and hearing the tales. I assume they were consistent at least, so kind of yes. like hanging out with friends each week. There are unifying elements there that some of the people appear each time, mm. although they're not really well-developed characters in the sin in the way that they probably are in Chaucer's um, famous Canterbury Tales. But it's enough. It's enough to get them to hang together in an interesting sort of way. And it does reflect, I think, the reality of, of a, a mob of drovers. Okay, so yeah, uh, it, kind of like a slow burn story. You're just kind of getting the feel of their lives, etc. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, did you, I mean, you mentioned there was, the, the, as you put it, 
very probably aptly casual racism, you know, scattered throughout as we've seen through many of the stories and things we've spoken about in this series. Um, was there much or were there any stories that really focused much on Indigenous perspectives or Indigenous tales or were they just sort of bit players in these in these tales? No, they were just bit players. Right. Uh, one of the more, the freer, looser episodes without a particular story, mm. there are several yarns about Indigenous people and their relationships with dogs and tracking um, hmm. and the skill that they, they show, um, this sort of thing. Um, but it's, it's really not um, interesting in the sense of, of a p- portrayal of Indigenous people at all. Okay. That, that sounds actually like it's quite common to hear at least somewhat positively, you know, the skills that they actually bring to the table, which that, yes. that seems to feature in many stories from this protracted era. But, yes, to, to not feature an Indigenous tale, I suppose, is not exactly surprising from this time. Um, no. What about how, how well represented were, were female storytellers, um, characters? Were they also very much second fiddle? There's one story that's contributed by a woman. I think she's the wife of one of the pastoralists whose station they stop at. Okay. And she actually tells the story within this? Yes, she tells oh, okay. She tells the story. Ah. And she tells the story about mistaken identity of a small infant. Hmm. So obviously suitable for a woman to be telling. Ah. But apart from that, no, it tends to be very much a male-centred universe. I'm not exactly shocked to hear that, I have to say. Um, I, I wish I was, but I'm not. Do, do you have a favourite story out of the 22-odd the stories? Well, I do I do quite like one of the American ones that's called The Wild Train about a, a runaway locomotive or a mistaken signalman. It's quite a slick sort of story. And I do like the, um, the three photos. The three photos is good, and I like there's this sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek uh, moral theme there that patience yes, is a virtue. Yes. Um, so when you dived into this, did you go in looking for this kind of pattern? Were you thinking, hmm, 1001 Arabian Nights, the Canterbury Tales, where's my Australian version? Is that, was was it such a lofty goal or is it complete accident? No, it's complete accident. Well, it's, we, we work from a computer-generated list of, of things that appeared and they don't always appear in any sort of sequence. Mm. So it was a while before I realised that that these were all part of one series. At first I thought, oh, this is funny. Is this called Round a Campfire or is it called The Deaf Cook, which is one of the first stories? Should I call it that? Should I ignore the fact that it comes in a column called Round the Campfire? And then just little by little you think, gosh, I, I think I saw that before go back, have a look, and gradually piece it together. Um, a lot of what we've done is just piecing together from a mass of data, mm. trying to work your way through the number of anonymous publications and pseudonymous publications, trying to find out who actually wrote this. A lot of that, what we've concentrated on is trying to find out really whether something is by an Australian author. Right. And that's why we spend such a lot of time trying to source this fiction, because a lot of it isn't. But then amazingly, some of it is. And there are a couple of examples of people who've written. There was a, there's one that I think Heath Bode has talked about on a couple of occasions, of a man called Captain Lacey, who's published lots and lots of, of adventure-type swashbuckling uh, narratives. And little by little, we found that he 
was also a man called Ivan Dexter. Oh. And that that neither of those were his real name anyway. <laughs> that he was a journalist. And we've, we've sort of traced him down and written about him too. But he, he published amazingly for a long And nowhere else can we found that, that people knew either that these were pseudonymous identities. Yeah. And he never published anything in a book form. And yet he's probably one of the most uh, prolific authors, Australian authors of that period. What, what's the motivation then? Why, why would you, I, I don't know if you know this, but I, I keep thinking, why would you publish under multiple pseudonyms if if your goal is to get your, I, I'm assuming your goal is to get your name out there or get your work out there. What, what's the advantage or the reasons? Any, any feeling for that? Perhaps trying to hide behind or to pretend that this is something new and fresh and different. Mm. His name was James Wright. And um, again, this is the interest of the of, of this whole project. He started out as an engine driver with Victoria Railways, mm. finally got a job on a newspaper and basically wrote for money. Mm. Apparently he had a few personal habits, a bit of a drinking <laughs> habit uh, that he needed to finance. And he, he wrote, I don't know, out of sheer enjoyment, perhaps he just enjoyed writing different types of material under different pseudonyms. Mm. But he, he certainly built up these personas. They, sketches of these two gentlemen appeared in newspapers. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, and sometimes they gave testimonials about various uh, cures and me- patent medicines <laughs> that were um, available at the time. I think perhaps sheer fun of it in many cases. So was there, do you ever get a sense from digging around in this that some people might have been a bit ashamed of what they were writing they didn't want to be found out or is it a bit Yeah, a bit I secret? think so. I think so. James Wright didn't start to publish under his own name until he actually got a job as a, an editor of a magazine that was published by a very reputable publishing house called Massena. And once he got that editorship, things started to appear under his own name. Right. Okay, so it's like a, a training ground almost. I'll, I'll practice under one name that didn't work or that worked well, but not in this direction. And then finally, yes. finally I'm yep. ready to say it was me all along. Yes, and, <laughs> and some of them, I think as Ivan Dexter, he wrote a lot of stories about convict life. I'm not sure whether he really distinguished those according to his different pseudonyms, but that's possibly the sort of thing that people did. I mean, I'm encroaching on, um, on Roger Osborne's areas of interest now, but... That's okay. Um, moving further forward in time, Vance Palmer, who was a literary novelist with serious aspirations, wrote an awful lot of, of material for things like The Woman's Mirror and for popular newspapers under pseudonyms because that was really not something he wanted associated with his more high-minded. Uh, um, so professional, we'll call it pride. <laughs> yes, that's a tactful word. <laughs> All right, let's talk a bit about the author of the Round the Campfire series, the enigmatically named Roland Quiz. So he's writing this for the Western Champion newspaper out of the tiny Queensland town of Barcolden. So when you finally realised this was actually a frame narrative put together by Quiz and had multiple instalments, what was that like? Was there an aha moment? It must have been super exciting. I was excited, Rod. I, I thought... Gosh, who is this Roland Quiz, who is obviously the controller of this narrative? Who is he? What's he doing out in Bar Calden in 1892? Where does he come from? How does he know that this is a technique that has worked well throughout literary history? So I thought, okay, I'll follow it through. Just one 
episode at a time. Okay, there are 22 of them. Okay, there's a story that unites them all. And yet, who is he? Where does he get these stories from? Has he written them? Because none of them are acknowledged. So this is the real excitement, if you're a complete nerd, is that you take a little bit of one of the stories, you click through it until you get something that looks as if it might be a really good search term. So you get a couple of different words, you pop them into Google. Mm. Nothing. So then you go to the British newspaper archive, you pop them into their search, and wow, there you go. There's a story published in a British newspaper that's got exactly the same text, and it's got an author. You know that this man has taken that. You think, gosh, you know, he's not just somebody fiddling around popping something into the local paper out of sheer boredom. He's got contacts, he's got sources, and knows where to look and knows how to deal with it. So then try to find who Roland Quiss is. All through the Western Champion, there are things attributed to him, reports, little travelogue things, and this one series. So then you have to go into an item that's called Bar Called and Remembered by Roland Quiss. And lo and behold, he talks about himself and his brother, and he names his brother. So then you've got the names, so you know who it is. You can build up a profile of the author. Mm. At the same time, you find other things that you can add to the database. Now, this story, the three photos that we've, we've heard performed by Perform Australia, appears not before it appears in The Western Champion, but after it appears in the Western Champion in another um, Australian newspaper. So it must have appeared somewhere beforehand, but we don't know that, that not all of the newspapers are digitised, not all of the issues of the newspaper are digitised, but we do find it by a man, an author called Jimmy Pennekin. Wow, who is Jimmy Pennekin? Ah. You get onto this track, which you can't leave a line. And so yeah. instead of, you know, finishing work, getting dinner or something, you're still stuck in front of the computer, addicted to this hunt. We find that Jimmy Panikin was actually a um, well-known man called Donald Fraser, who published regularly under his own name in a New South Wales newspaper, and he was a well-respected secondary school teacher. It's just amazing how all of these things come together down this rabbit hole that you get into. The, the, the trick, I think, well, I don't know whether it's a trick, it's not one that I've discovered, is how to leave this alone and mm. just get on with your job, which is actually putting the material into the database. All jobs have that damn boring bit where you have obligations and you have to do the thing you're being paid to do. It's disappointing. That sounds great. I mean, I, I think you should be working for the FBI if you ever get bored with this, with that kind of forensic uh, attitude to discovering who people are. Yes, well, they do say that literary scholars aren't the best detectives. I believe it. I've, I'm just trying to think if I've said anything that could incriminate me or you could use later if someone asks you, and I'm, I'm a bit worried. I tend to get a little bit um, overexcited about some of these rabbit holes that are yeah. possible to go down. Yeah. And I, I think that some of the things that we find out are not terribly relevant in a literary um, way, but they do change the way we look at, at newspapers and their cultural role, particularly during the 19th century. Mm. So that far from being 
I mean, I, I chose Burkhold because we're talking about the Western champion, but there'd be always a prejudice and a feeling that towns like that were cultural backwaters cut off by the tyranny of distance from the pip, from the centres of civilization and so forth. And yet this was not the case. They were well served by these newspapers. And although they reprinted shamelessly fiction that they'd sourced from somewhere else, they were providing this for their readership. In an era when books were hard to come by, libraries were not very common or accessible. And yet every week for a very small amount of money, people could get good reading material. I think that that's interesting. And it's by Colton's experiences repeated all over the country. And one of the great things about Trove is that we can do some research on that sort of readership and the role that newspapers played, where previously research into newspapers and newspaper fiction had to be done where there were good records kept in libraries so that the concentration was always on what was published in big city yeah. papers. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm interested in that. So what's what's next for you? Like, what are you working on now and what are you moving into on this this project? Anything you can share with us or is it super secret still? No, it's not super secret. We're just gradually moving along at a very, very slow pace through the 1920s. Mm. We're still getting a lot of fiction from the UK and the US, but we're starting to get more Australian fiction and that will be something that happens as we get closer to the end of the Trotus coverage in 1954. Well, I suppose we've just... We, we have discovered that a lot of our theories and prejudices about literary history and Australian culture need to be re-examined. Can you um, unpack that a little? Is there anything that's particularly struck you? Because that's, that's a very interesting thing to discover. Well, I think the big discovery, and I think Kath Bode's written about this in her book, The World of Fiction, which mm. basically analysed the first three years of our results, is that there was a lot more contact with American fiction than British fiction. but also, the extent of Australian writing has just been underestimated. So we weren't just a bunch of yokels throwing things, drinking heavily, avoiding police and herding sheep. No, exactly. In, the, in our spare time, we wrote stories too. Yeah. I mean, we've got a few big names of Australian writers like Catherine Martin, people like that, children's writers like Ethel Turner, early works by a woman called Alice Grant Rossman, who ended up becoming America's favourite author at one point. <laughs> and lots of her early work is in trove, work that's never been looked at before. Hmm. So I feel if we, we're writing a role in a <laughs> way, culturally, we're sort of stepping out from behind a, a perception, yes, of us as being a bit like the people at the Bush race meeting. <laughs> so we just proceed on with that, hopefully find more works and more things about the works that we already have takes a lot of time. I believe that. I can imagine it take a lot of time. So if people want to do that sort of research, it's there. Yeah. They can look for some of these things that we don't know about. There are lots of stories in the database that are by authors whom we just don't know. Sometimes they appear several times. So we know that they've come from somewhere and they've circulated around mm. and people, newspapers have picked them up because they just need that those few column inches for that particular issue, because they're all trying to make a living, hmm. but they will all have been published somewhere. And sometimes you might find that they're not just random, isolated, short stories, but that they were actually all by the same person. It's possible. There is so much in Trove that 
you won't find unless you use a guide like the to-be-continued database. Mm. I mean, you can search in that and do a proper sort of search, searching for stories that are single, published within a single instalment of a newspaper. You can put in the time frame um, and say, you know, stories published between this time and that time. Uh, There's no subject search. So if you don't know what you're looking for, I suspect that's one of the best best ways to do it, just to look at perhaps a decade and see what what short stories were published, what, uh, and and then go for the, from the from the to be continued database. You can then just click into the text in trove. Mm. But there, there are just so many, so many. Well, then I think um, what's left is to say, Carol Hetherington, thank you so much. This is a very interesting conversation. I, I really want to know where this goes and what crimes you solve moving ahead. It's going to be fascinating. Thank you, Rod. That was the final episode of Season 1 of To Be Continued. If you want to hear a full performance of the three photos by students from Perform Australia... We've published a special bonus episode read out for you wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell someone about it. We'd love as many people as possible to hear these amazing stories. 